Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome a very good friend of mine to the podcast, Nick Brewer. This has to be one of the most crazy discussions I have recorded to date and you will see why. During this episode, we look at Nick's journey, which includes skiing at international level, drug smuggling, prison, isolation, meditation, movement, coaching, and many, many lessons learned along the way. Please be aware that during this episode, we discuss graphic accounts of life in prison and situations that occurred within organized crime and gangs. Let's get into it. Nick, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you on here. Pleasure, David. It's always good to talk to you and hang out with you. I am very keen to get into your past. Uh, one of the main reasons for having you on here is you're a good friend, but equally to dive into a very diverse uh, and interesting past, which I think is quite unique to uh, to yourself. Would you be able to go into sort of your journey in your younger years that have led up to where you are now, including... Uh, some of the challenges that have come up along the way yeah sure so it's um it's basically been like a a 36 year journey um i started to i basically started skiing at around the age of 10 um i went on a school holiday and i was supernatural at skiing i came home joined a club and at the age of 14 15 i got scouted for the um english junior ski team um by the age of 15, I got a sponsorship and a scholarship and I went to live in the Alps to train full time and start to compete internationally. Uh, by this time, I was already like top three in the country for my age. So my entire blueprint as a growing up teenager was training eight hours a day. Um, I was just training at national level for international competitions. And that went on for about four years. Um, I would spend kind of like five months a year skiing in the Alps come home, do some ground training at the uh, Lindishaw National uh, Teams Training Centre up north. Uh, I then go away like two or three months skiing again in the summer on glaciers, come back home, again ground training, and then off again autumn skiing on glaciers uh, for pre-training before the, uh, the season of competing in the Alps again. So, yeah, I had like a, a beautiful idyllic upbringing but in the sense of training it was a hard one and we covered every aspect of training um this all came to like a really abrupt end when i was 18 and i was training super giant slalom and i broke my back in two places sadly that was where it all began and it all ended because firstly my skiing career was over um, two compression fractures in my spine, plus herniations. On traction for nearly two to three months. It took six months until I was actually fully mobile again. It would have meant another six months training to get back to where I was a year ago. Now, when you're 18, 19 at national level, a year out of training in 1988, with the amount of resources that were available, just didn't cut it. And, you know, it's not like today with the amount of, like, 
technology that there is in rehab, recovery, understanding of bodies, uh, financial resources that are available. Um, in 1998, it was slim on the ground. And so my skiing career literally was finished in one day, along with like nine years of training. Well, yeah, that's got to be tough, especially at 18, because you write everything at 18, you want it now, it needs to be done within a week. So to, to get told that it's going to take another six months to get to where you were one year ago, uh, to have an 18-month process to just to be where you were, is quite a hard thing to comprehend. So I can imagine that was quite a challenge. Yeah, no, it wasn't happening. And evidently, I, I got depressed and I went into like a, a, a dark hole and nobody quite knew what to do with me. My academic education had suffered, you know, because of my love and passion for skiing. Um, and I hadn't gone on to college or university. So, you know, I basically planned to you know, maybe go to the 92 Olympics and then open my own ski school. Um, but after the accident, that was in 88, you know, I was kind of like a broken kid. Now, I had all the love and support from my parents, but honestly, they had no idea what to do with me. Um, you know, I was a pro athlete and one that was extremely addicted to adrenaline. So, kind of early 18, I packed my bags and I basically hitchhiked to the south of France. And I wanted to be anonymous. Um, I didn't want people coming up to me and saying, hey, Nick, like, what a shame, like, you broke your back, you dropped from the team. It was just too painful. I just went into a complete mental blackout. You know, I wanted to forget the past. I wanted to forget where I'd come from. The pain of not being able to ski and compete anymore. You know, it was almost like a physical feeling that I just wanted to uh, become numb to. Um, so I arrived in the south of France and I basically lived like a tramp on the beach in a little place, um, a little shipping port called Antibes. And that's where uh, my, my new life started, which wasn't a good one. But what it was, it was a very destructive one and one that helped me to numb out from the pain of not being able to ski anymore. So you're effectively looking for, to fill a void that was eight hours a day. And I think for some people listening to this, may train three, four hours a day, the dedicated movement practitioners. But for those that are sort of ex-Olympians, uh, I know there's a few that listen to this, they could definitely probably relate to this where you've your, your whole day is training everything in your day is orientated towards constructive development of particular skills and it's very routine so when you move out of that there's a huge void to fill isn't there so exactly that i mean i think void is the absolute word um there's a void in your day and there's a big void in your mind mm -hmm. you know there's an there's almost like an identity crisis going on um because this whole identity that you've kind of uh, been working with all these years, you know, like this, this champion skier that you're winning and you're competing and you're adrenaline. And, you know, if you're not skiing, you're training. If you're not training, you're, you're, you're eating. If you're not, you know, you're doing groundwork and what you move is uh, about skiing. You're thinking about it. You're dreaming about it. You know, it, it consumes your whole day. You know, being a pro athlete consumes your life completely. That's what you become. And so obviously when that's taken away from you, then yes, you are left in a big dark void. So evidently, you know, I went on a very dark path. 
Um, you have to understand that up until the age of 19, I had absolutely no idea uh, what alcohol, women or drugs were. So you had zero consumption up until that point? Nothing zero. at all? I mean, I, I, you know, at the age of 16, 17, 18, and my friends you know, from school were hanging out on street corners, like drinking beer and smoking cigarettes, I had absolutely no idea what that was. Absolutely none at all. You know, it wasn't until I hit 19 and I hit like the almost like the self-destruct pocket switch was when then um, I was introduced to, to alcohol and drugs. And that was kind of then when life took a left turn. Um, and it was one I essentially chose. Um, I, got, I kind of got picked up like away from stray. Like I was a vulnerable kid. You know, I didn't want to go home. I felt like I let my family down. They had invested a lot of money and time in me. Uh, and, and I felt like a complete failure. You know, so the only thing I could do was go down the darkest, most destructive route possible, which was alcohol and drugs. Um, and I eventually, eventually got picked up by a gang that I started to work with. Um, and essentially, I became a smuggler at the age of 20. How did that start? Was it moving small loads to begin with? Was it very, very small? I mean, I basically started selling ecstasy in nightclubs in the south of France. Okay. And from that, I made a living. Then I decided, I mean, what happened was it, it almost, the void that had been created um, got filled with the danger of selling drugs. Yeah, the adrenaline, the risk of being caught. Yeah. The risk of being caught. All of a sudden, I felt alive. It was dangerous. It was dark. And it was destructive. And because of my mind shift, just wanted to completely black out the past. I was like a golden kid. <laughs> you know, wanted to black that. I now wanted to become the darkest kid around. You know, I just, you know, I, I wanted a completely new life. I wanted to be honest. I didn't even talk about skiing for about ten years. Oh. I couldn't. It was just too painful. So, from selling a few ecstasy pills in a nightclub in the south of France and getting beaten up by the bouncers, you know, I started to get into um, dope, hashish, and then eventually I was actually taking hashish from southern Spain to the UK. Um, I was driving a, a small lorry at the age of 20, 21, and I ended up in prison at the age of 21. So that all happened within really two, two and a half years. Exactly, within two years, from finishing skiing, I was in prison. Whoa. Um, so you can imagine the shock. It, it was horrific. I mean, my, my parents blessed them, I mean, you can't even begin to imagine like the devastation that they felt, you know, um, one minute I'm like, you know, the golden child, the skier in the newspapers, I'm top three in the country. Next minute I'm in prison for smuggling hundred kilos of dope um, at the age of 21. So I got sentenced to three years of which I served half. And it was probably the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Um, there was, there was no rehabilitation. It was like an institution for learning how to smuggle more dope. So did the, um, the events that unfolded prior to that, to actually getting caught, how, how did you get caught? Was it just some, were you, were you being followed for a while? Was it something the police were aware of? I got caught at Dover Docks. Um, a dog sniffed the back of my lorry and just found, found the dope hidden, buried in wood. Um, and from there, they just took me to Canterbury Prison. I was on remand, I pleaded guilty. And they took me up to London, and then I served my sentence in Maidstone. And in Maidstone Prison in 1992, it's full of gangsters. 
And again, they took me under their wing. They educated me on how to traffic drugs. So I essentially came out of prison with a, a Rolodex as long as my arm for the context, an understanding of drug smuggling. Well, okay. So, so that, that was the start of the next stage? That was the start of the next stage. I then devoted probably the next 10 years of my life to smuggling. The only saving grace I had throughout that 10 years was the fact that I had spent almost 10 years training at team level. So I kind of had this blueprint, this hard wiring that kept me fit. And I kept moving, I kept training. You know, people often be curious, you know, I had this, this as a young kid, I had this body on me that was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I was in this really weird world. Everyone kind of wondered, you know, where it came from. I, you know, I was extremely fit. There was nothing I couldn't do. You know, the, the training that we went through in skiing, I mean, it covered every parameter of training, be it aerobic, anaerobic, strength, uh, power, mobility, flexibility. So as, as a kid, I was extremely fit. I wasn't coming from a criminal family. Yeah, I was just coming from a normal suburban, London suburban family. Uh, working class people with a, you know, a kid that had become a post-sportsman. So I didn't come from a criminal background. I wasn't associated with criminals growing up. But I, for some reason, I ended up working with some of the biggest gangs in London and then essentially in the southern Spain in Marbella. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I, I think then the next 10 years I spent dedicating my life to self-destructing and smuggling. At the end of the 90s, I, um, I ended up going to South America. Uh, I basically jumped out of the frying pan into a great big fire. Um, I arrived in Argentina in the year 2000. I was 30 years of age and I stopped smuggling dope and got into smuggling cocaine. So obviously everything changed. Like the, the danger changed, the sentences if caught changed, the, the risks on your life and others changed. Yeah, everything multiplied. So is there a, so on that one, is there a hierarchy? So basically you'd work your way up through different types of drugs and it was almost seen as like, if you're smuggling this, show I a certain competency and move on. it was more like climbing your way through the shit pile of smugglers to get to the top of the hierarchy mm -hmm. whereby you weren't considered or, yeah, as they would say in prison, like you've made your bones. So you wouldn't do like the... You know the shitty work but actually you've been writing more on the organizational side and by the time i got to 30 i was basically working for myself um oh. i was into international shipping um i had companies i had an asset company i had properties i had money i had a network of people i had infrastructure through europe and spain and london um so yeah i kind of moved into a different category um you know i was I was old beyond my years at the age of 30 in the sense of smuggling, mm -hmm. um, which is why, you know, when I arrived to South America, I was given a few contacts from Colombia. Um, and from there, I, I got into cocaine smuggling. Um, so from the age of like 30 to 34, I, I based myself in Buenos Aires in Argentina, where I, I then began to build an empire. Um, I became extremely wealthy, extremely dangerous. I had like numerous names and passports, bank accounts, businesses. 
Um, and I set myself up in Argentina, uh, albeit traveling around, you know, Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, and Peru to do business with you know, various suppliers and stuff. I was basically shipping um, cocaine out of Argentina in containers. I mean, surely, surely the environment was very different to London. The just what you were dealing with, the types of people. A huge different. I mean, I can't even begin to explain to you. It was, it was so out there. It was so different um, that to, to actually kind of intellectualize the sensations of going from, you know, uh, Marble City, Marbella to South South America, was kind of crazy. You know, just rocking up in, in Argentina at the age of 30 years of age with a backpack <laughs> and a bag of money and a contact um, and a whole team, like a whole gang and infrastructure left behind me in Europe waiting for me to, you know, give the heads up that we're going to start shipping cocaine home. I mean, by this time, my, my reality had completely shifted. You know, my, my mind was on Mars. It wasn't like I was thinking rationally. Yeah. You know, I was completely gone. Were you using at the time? Were you still into drugs at the time? I mean, you, I often hear some people that are in the business don't use the product. That's one of the, the big rules. And again, speaking from what I've heard, not from personal experience. No, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, if you get high in your own supply, you're going to get washed up. You're going to die. You're going to get shot. You're going to end up in prison. Um, so I was. I was in it for, for many reasons. One was the sick, perverse kick of getting away with it. Obviously, the money and the power. But again, it was this, this bigger void that I kept trying to fill. You know, nothing was ever enough. Nothing, nothing was ever good enough. Um, so I was constantly like trying to fill this void in my head, this, this, this constant pain in my head. And I still, by the age of 30, I still didn't put a pair of skis on my feet. You know, I still didn't spoke about skis to anyone. Um, so I hadn't actually dealt with the damage that uh, had been caused when I was 18 years of age. I hadn't gone in there and like, you know, done any kind of self-psychotherapy or any healing work. Yeah, it's almost like an avoidance technique. Yeah, to even understand like, you know, why I was doing what I was doing. Um, but as I say, I kind of spent four years in and around South America, occasionally coming back to Europe, but not too many times. And I, I built another world, another life in, um, in South America. I mean, in Argentina, I had, a, I had a big nightclub, I had two restaurants, I had houses on the island, I had boats. I mean, I had the whole, you know, all the lavish things that went along with the lifestyle. I mean, you know, we were shipping millions and millions of euros worth of cocaine for time. So we were quite high-end um, shippers. And as I said, for me, it was business. I mean, I didn't really, you know, drugs never really been my thing. Even though I dabbled occasionally, you know, I might smoke a joint, I had a, line of coke or went out drinking but again like my, my template was so healthy from skiing that it just kind of felt a bit alien to me to be you know getting too wasted and messed up on drugs it, it just didn't feel like my body wanted to do it mm -hmm. you know i'm only ever grateful for my upbringing for that um and then again my my entire world came crashing down um at the age of 34 i i was busted in in Argentina after there'd been a, a long um, kind of investigation period where I was I was more or less spied on by many different agencies around Europe and South America because of the 
work that I was doing and I'd become quite high profile, probably too high profile for my own good. Um, so once the, you know, the secret services and various countries got their claws into me, they weren't letting go until they got me. Um, and they actually busted me one night at my nightclub um, after a big party and I was, I was due to fly to Columbia the next day to do another big deal, which actually probably saved my ass, the fact that I got busted in Argentina when I did. Otherwise, I'd hate to have thought what would have happened if I had gone to Colombia and made that deal. Mm. So I'm guessing that's for a big amount or significant amount of product? Yeah, that would have been for a huge amount of cocaine, like well into the tens of millions. Um, and now when I reflect back on that, I'm kind of like, you know, you must have been nuts. Yeah. Like absolutely nuts. Like now it's like, it's so alien to me to even think what I was doing back then. Like, how I even got involved and how that became my new norm, my reality, it's crazy. Yeah, it's completely out there. So at the age of, I was actually 33, um, I got busted big time in Buenos Aires. I mean, firstly, the drug squad kicked the shit out of me. They absolutely beat me to a pulp. Um, then they questioned me. Then they threw me in a black hole for three or four days. Um, where there was no water, no light, no food. Uh, and then I was taken in front of a judge like four or five days later, black and blue, smelling of piss and shit. I had a head that looked like a melon. Um, they tried to break my leg, they tried to break my arms. Um, you know, I was in a pretty bad state. And we were actually 10 people at the time that got arrested. And after seeing the judge and read out the depositions about what we had done, you know, they absolutely threw the book at us. I mean, we got, we got charged for organized crime, money laundering, drug trafficking, guns, falsification of documentation. I mean, there was nothing that we hadn't done. You know, I was like, I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm in so much shit that I am never ever gonna get out of here ever again. And they, they sent, there was 10 of us and they split us all up and they sent myself and another English guy that I was with, the only English guy, my co-defendant, to a prison called Divotto in downtown Buenos Aires. And the only way I can relate to this place is hell. There were 2,000 prisoners from South America there. There was a poverty, a violence, and a corruption that I could never ever possibly have dreamt up. It was so bad. I mean, the malnutrition, the death inside, the dirt, the filth, the killing that was going on, the, the mutilation of prisoners to themselves and other, other, other prisoners, it was horrific. I remember you saying to me, it was like a scene from Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, literally like, the killings that went on in there were so barbaric, it was some of the most horrific tools I've ever seen in my life. You know, like proper old school, like gladiator, bats with big nails drawn through them, the machetes and swords and blunt instruments, hot water, boiling oil. I mean, you know, the, the fights and the, the state of some of the prisoners, the scars they had on them. I mean, I was in shock. I literally felt like I'd hit by a truck. So while I was trying to survive my, my first kind of 
few years in prison at this time, obviously all my assets were being stripped from me. So, you know, I went into prison a, a multi-millionaire with a multi-asset holding company, a lot of properties, a lot of cash, and a lot of deals. And I think within two years, I was broke. Cool. I was down to $100. Um, absolutely every penny was taken away from me. And then what couldn't be confiscated, the Argentine judges, politicians, lawyers, and prosecutors took off me in bribes. So then they were kind of saying like, hey, you know, we can get you out. You know, we need X amount of dollar. Uh, we're going to change the case. And we can get you out of here. And we went through like five judges, two prosecutors. Every time a judge got caught with his pants down taking money, they got, you know, they got bumped embezzlement, but it didn't matter. The cases got passed on to another table. So we were actually um, in prison on Iman for three and a half years before we even went to trial. So you were kind of in no man's land. You know, for three and a half years, you didn't even know when you were going home. They broke every single one of our humanitarian rights because all the Spanish colonies signed a pact saying that if the, any prisoner that hasn't been um, sentenced within two years has to be released, otherwise they can be detained indefinitely. So they went against all my rights, even the British embassy in the end was flying the, uh, flying the white flag saying, hey, this is a British citizen. He's pleaded guilty to your crimes. We're three years in, he doesn't have a sentence. You've got to let him go. You've signed a pact, you have to let him go. And the Argentine government just stuck their fingers up at the English government. Well, so you were 36 at the time. You still had no idea what was going on, whether you were pretty much guilty or not, whether you'd get out. Exactly. Um, no idea when I was going home, absolutely. So. My time in prison was very interesting. Um, we spent a year in hell. When I say hell, we were just on the, the, on the normal wing, the common wing, where every day was a riot. Every day there was people getting killed, stabbed. I mean, it was a hellhole. And then one year in, the judge was actually concerned that I was going to get kidnapped inside prison and held for ransom. So they put me in isolation for six months. So I went into isolation for six months and that was actually where my kind of healing journey started to happen. That was when I got back into movement. Hmm. So, you know, when you're in prison, you get, you've got a lot of time to think and reflect. And, you know, obviously the first year when I was in there, it was just pure survival. You know, you're just basically surviving to live every single day. You know, you don't have beds, you've got pieces of foam to sleep on. You know, there's violence happening around you. Some days you get food, some days you don't. You know, if it's cold, you get cold and it's wet. If it's hot, it's like an oven. You know, there's no windows, there's no heating. Um, you know, if you have a shower, it's cold. Um, you know, you're sleeping on a concrete floor. You're living in the same clothes for like six months. It's hell. You know, it's absolutely hell. So my first year was literally just surviving, just staying alive. Um, then when I went into isolation, a book on yoga came into my hands and I had not much else to do at the time but to kind of look at this book and read it. And it kind of resonated with me. There was a lot of like pictures in there of these interesting kind of poses that I learned about asanas and kind of movement and training again resonated with me. All of a sudden, all my childhood memories started coming up of skiing. So I started to deal with my skiing days and what happened. Um, and I got into meditation. I was in isolation, so there's not much to do. So, you know, I started to sit down and 
try and understand even what meditation was. Uh, I, I tried to start breathing. Uh, I tried to find some peace and some space in my head. And that's why I got into like, you know, um, deep senses of meditation. I was, in the end, I was sitting for like two hours a day. I was observing the mind. Uh, I got into re reflecting and I, I started to kind of break down you know, the process of what had happened over the last 15 years and understanding, you know, what had gone wrong and the hatred that I had for myself and everybody else and the resentment that I felt from having a hard blow delivered to me from skiing. Um, so that's when I started to have, like, breakdowns. And, and then after six months um, of being in isolation, that was kind of when my yogic life began in prison. We then managed to... Uh, get ourselves into the VIP part of the prison. So we had a bit of money left and the judge and the governor of the prison, we paid them, I think it was like 25K each and he put us in a VIP room. So this was like a wing inside a prison with 20 prisoners inside 2,000. So you've now got 20 cons, super lucky, quite kind of high-end, you have some judges and you know, some big arm rubbers and big narco-trafficantes in there couple of politicians, just 20 of us inside one room that was inside 2,000 people. So all of a sudden now you're in this, this wing and around you, all you can hear is the madness of the prison. You know, the gunshots going off, the riots happening, men dying, men getting raped, fires going off. Um, but you were in this, this space where you were safe. It was a contained space. Even though in the VIP there were still fights, the fact is, Nobody wanted to go back into the main prison. So the behavior was really good. There would be fights amongst the prisoners inside, but no one would die. You know, because otherwise they knew they would be going directly back onto the main wing and we were going back in survival mode. So when I arrived to the, the VIP 18 months in, there was also three mini kind of apartments in there, like three mini rooms. And I managed to get one. And it was from there that I, I went into self-isolation of about 20 hours a day for four years. Four years? Yeah. Whoa. Not four weeks, not four months, four years. I mean, said quickly, that passes quite quick. Mm. But you go and sit in a small room for four years for 20 hours a day. And that was where I really started to unravel the mind. You know, I got deep into meditation. Um, yeah, I started asking questions like, you know, who am I? I started learning an awful lot about myself, who I was, my weaknesses, my strengths, my childhood, my parents, my growing up, skiing. You know, I went through everything. My relationship to myself, to women, to business, to money, all my egoic identities that I developed, uh, all the voids, you know, everything, everything came through. I had mental breakdowns, I had nervous breakdowns. But it all happened in that room. Um, and I have to say, like, it was, it was probably like in, in prison, it was yoga that saved my life. You know, it, it got me into a good place. I would say, like, by year four or five in prison, I was actually happy. Hmm. I became desireless. I'd, un I'd begun to understand myself. And I'd come into a really good space. I had a great routine. You know, my routine from then on was, like, wake up. Um, you know, in prison in Argentina, you have to bring your own food, in, otherwise you're going to go hungry. So I'd make some food, I'd meditate, I'd spend two hours training. So obviously, I got 
heavily into uh, yoga asanas and meditation, pranayama. My parents by this time were able to send me books. So I was getting like a huge amount of books on yoga. I was reading like two, two books a week on yoga. So I studied, you know, all the systems of yoga, all the philosophy of yoga, I studied the mind, I studied movement again. And then all my old trainings from skiing camp started to come back through again. And uh, I put together like training programs for myself. You know, and I got massively into mobility, movement, um, flexibility, mobility, strength training. I, I had no weights as such, so it was my body. And then I started to kind of play around with handstands. So my, my first ever handstand was done in a prison cell in Argentina, hmm. which I'm never, ever going to forget that day because it, it was the handstand, the actual particular handstand move that absolutely captivated me and fascinated me up until now. You know, it has done every day for 15 years. Um, and that is where my handstand journey began. I mean, I had absolutely no idea how to do a handstand. I think my handstand in prison was one of those like outrageous bananas. <laughs> I mean, I had shoulders like bricks. Um, I had great balance. But um, yeah, it was like one of those great banana handstands. But I loved it, the balance, the focus it gave me. And it kind of got me out of prison. You know, like I was starting to understand like five years in that freedom is a state of mind. Because even now, like, you know, living in the world, you realize that most people are in, actually in prison in their head. You know, they're robbed and they're consumed by their mind, their thoughts through fear, through life, you know, all the the stuff that's going on in the world with COVID, you know, many people are in prison in their minds, you know, um, and I, I kind of reached the state of freedom, like year four and a half, five, where I was actually free. I was happy. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things with yoga as a teaching method is the removal of senses and distraction, isn't it? So you, you're removing your dependency on these things to effectively preoccupy the mind to the point that you can't go inward because you're constantly distracted by seeing things touching things hearing things tasting things external kind of distractions and yeah i mean not only does yoga help to kind of calm those fluctuations down but i had no distraction i was in a box i was in a 12 foot by 8 foot box 20 hours a day with a little window so that's it. There was nothing to look at. I was looking at a grey wall for four years. So there was zero distraction. You know, I mean, there was nothing going on in my mind. It was so peaceful. I mean, I would say I'm less peaceful now than I was year four, year five in prison. You know, because obviously now, you know, you know I, have a, I have a car, I have a girlfriend, I have a business, I have a job, I need to earn money, I need to pay my rent. So I'm, I'm kind of back in the, you know, I'm, I'm back in the mold. In prison, I was, I was almost free, albeit physically incarcerated in the walls. In my mind, I was a very free person. Like you said, that is, that is freedom. Um, all of these things that are perceived freedom, technically some of the freest countries, let's say that in the world, are actually the ones that perceive freedom or show um, it feels like to the people that live within these that they are, but they're not. The culture dictates what they do, what they see, what they hear um, and if you can free these concepts and it used to find the same same in war um, I only spent a short time in conflict but there was definitely a beauty to it, a simplicity of wake up very simple stay alive do what you need to do go back to bed end of that's your day yeah I mean I think now I live in a bubble 
I live in a very small bubble. You know, my world is very simple. I've I've kind of got my world down to a very simple place. You know, I live in I live in Ibiza on top of a mountain. My studio is 15 minutes away. And my world lives in 20 minutes. You know, I, I kind of I come home, I'm pretty peaceful. I go to my studio, I'm there like 12 hours a day. I'm coaching, I'm training, teaching, hanging out with like-minded people, and I come home and chill and eat and go to sleep. And I'm super happy. You know, occasionally I might go you know, around the mountains, there's some climbing or there's a beach, but my life is so simple. You know, I don't buy into much. I don't watch the news. Um, I keep completely focused on my love and passion, which is movement and training and integrating movement into people's lives. So just going back to the end of my prison days, um, I was sent, in the end, I was sentenced to 10 years, of which um, I had served three and a half by the time I got sentenced. And I got released after six years. So I actually spent six years um, inside in total. Um, the four years left and given back to me, uh, I was expelled from Argentina. So I went to Argentina in 2000. I went to prison in 2004. And in 2010, um, the Argentine government, they expelled me from Argentina and they sent me to the UK directly from prison. So I didn't even have you know, 12 hours out. Uh, homely, I literally went from a madhouse to the back of a jumbo jet, <laughs> which was, you know, quite a trip in itself. Um, so 210, I, I arrived at the age of 40, and I was being set free in the physical sense. So I arrived back in London, um, I think it was January 210. Absolutely pot broke. I had like $100 in my back pocket. But I had like a wealth of knowledge and freedom around me, which made me feel super rich. And it was richness that I could never quite achieve before with all my millions. It was very weird. And um, when I arrived to Heathrow Terminal 5, which looked like a spaceship at the time, because imagine like you know, I've been Argentine jail for six years and Heathrow Terminal 5 just being built. I sat down in a the cafe there and I had a coffee and just sat and reflected. Yeah, on the last 20 odd years and it was almost like the, the plane journey back from Argentina was just like this time walk that took me out of this mad world that I used to belong in and, and it was left behind like a film it was almost like a third party the work was done you know the healing was done I, I was ready to move on into a new world but my old world that I lived in a southern world I couldn't relate to it anymore you know I would say that I was absolutely 100% rehabilitated from trafficking and breaking the law. There was not one part of me that wanted to phone one contact and go back to smuggling at all. Not one grain of me, which is the most interesting thing because 96% of people reoffend. Do you think part of that reoffending is based on the conversation we had about two years ago when I was with you in Ibiza? You were saying about if someone is jailed in the UK, they come out with a lot of fees left to pay back to the government so they end up reoffending because they can't make that sort of money back again do you think your situation was quite unique that you got sent to argentina to deal with your uh, sentence there i mean I, I was definitely lucky getting arrested in argentina purely because argentina at the time had the lowest sentencing for trafficking cocaine in the world so with my guilty plea um it got it down to 10 years 
I'm pretty sure that for the same crime in the UK, I've probably got 40. So I'd probably still be in prison today. Um, but the fact is that I was charged guilty for everything. So there is no double jeopardy. So when I was sent to the UK, I was a free man. They couldn't really arrest me. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I, when I got home, I mean, the sad thing about prisons worldwide is there's no rehabilitation. It's no psychotherapy. You know, they teach you how to pop rivet metal. They don't make prisoners feel good about themselves. You know, they lock them up, they throw the key away and don't give a shit what happens to them when they get out, which is why they reoffend. You know, they're, they're rejected socially. They don't have jobs. They can't get jobs. Um, and they, you know, they haven't gone through the process of actually trying to understand themselves. Um, you know, I was extremely lucky that maybe I was in isolation and, and yoga found me, but, and I wanted to change, but, you know, for most guys in prison these days, I mean, there's absolutely no chance at all. You know, why would they want to, why would they want to rehabilitate themselves? For what? You know, there's nothing there. They're going to get taught how to like, you know, work in a factory, popping rivets. There's no psychotherapy, there's no psychology work done, there's no understanding their home situation. You know, the fact they may have been brought up by alcoholics and drug addicts, um, or they might have gone through abuse as kids. You know, there's no understanding, there's no therapy done to help these people come to an understanding of who they are and why they were doing what they were doing. So yeah, 96% of prisoners don't stand a chance. And I think even if they get the intervention, there's not enough intervention there to help everyone, is there? Um, and this, the, the system doesn't support that. There's, there's not money to get people into a job that one inspires them and gives them that kick that they might have got. Like you said, you were filling a void from your athletic years that there was an adrenaline kick behind this thing. So it kept you sort of enthusiastic to, to do something, to, to keep your mind engaged. So if you come out and you're popping rivets, like you said, in the factory, is that really going to inspire you to want to do that? Or could you go and earn 50 times more by doing one job every every month no i mean i was extremely fortunate i remember uh you know sitting in Heathrow terminal five drinking a coffee and you know i sat there and thought to myself what am i going to do i have no money i don't have any houses left i don't have a car and i sat there and, and it was almost like i downloaded my future and it came to me and it was the fact that movement and meditative practices has had such a profound effect on my life that if movement could do that to me in prison, then my goal in life was to integrate movement into as many lives as possible for my freedom. And I went home to my parents in Essex, which I hadn't seen for over 10 years. And I think I stayed at home for two or three months, just kind of, you know, getting my shit together and um, reintegrating back into society. And on the third month, I, I found a yoga client, um, a guy that I knew in a deli in Nottingham Hill Gate in West London, uh, who I befriended, knew that I was into yoga. And he said to me one day, hey, there's a, there's a lady over here that would like to learn yoga, would you like to teach her? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. It was my first ever client. It was a private client. And um, at the time I had this... Um, small little apartment that some friends of mine had loaned me money to rent, some school, high school friends. And the state were helping me to pay the rent because they said I was completely unemployable. 
So I was kind of getting handouts and living on handouts from friends in the state. And so I had my first ever client and, you know, we did a yoga session together up in my flat because I had no furniture in it. So it was a studio. You know, I had no money to buy chairs and tables and stuff. So I had a mattress on the floor and a sheet in one room. And in the other room, it was a really beautiful kind of square room with some sash windows, wooden floor and white walls. So it was like a great yoga studio. So I basically started to teach yoga in my apartment. And, um, you know, she went away and uh, booked up another session and she introduced me to her friend who introduced me to another friend. And before I knew it, I built up this really small, unique client base in Notting Hill Gate until it became an almost sustainable business. You know? And then I went to the state and I said, hey, look, you know, I've, I've become self-employed. I'm going to be a yoga teacher and thanks for your help. And I don't need your money anymore. I'm really grateful for what you've done for me. And I think after about a year, I was... I was doing around 500 sessions a month. 500? Yeah. On, on the, after the first year. It was crazy. I was doing like something like crazy, like 100 a week. I mean, it was, it was absolutely ridiculous the amount of sessions I was doing. It was crazy. Um, you know, people literally coming to my apartment every hour on the hour all day. You know, and in the end, um, the neighbors must have thought, what, what is going on? Like, yeah, we, we love you to bits, but you turned <laughs> this apartment block into a yoga studio. Can you please find the studio? <laughs> and I, um, I got in contact with, uh, I was in Notting Hill Gate and there was a pub that I used to go to, uh, not far from Notting Hill Gate, off of Goldborn Road called The Chilled Eskimo. And it was a pub that I used to go to in the 90s with my friends to party and, uh, you know, it was full of actors and gangsters. Beautiful family, the Picards. And I went and saw Maureen, the landlady, and I hadn't seen her for like 12 years. And she, you know, she was really happy to see me and you know, wondered where I'd been. And I told her, and I said to the, I said to the, hey, look, you know, I'm looking for a studio. And she was like, what for? To live in? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm a yoga teacher now. And bless her, she fell about laughing. I mean, like you can imagine she knew me from my past. Now I've come back from prison 10 years and I'm teaching yoga. And she says to me, you know, after she got herself together, she said, hey, well, remember the old party room? We had the lockdown room, like the after party room upstairs. It was like an 800 square foot room, beautiful old Georgian house with floor to ceiling sash windows and old oak floors. She said, you can have that. So she said, it's our junk room now, but you'd have to go and refurbish it and, you know, clean it up. And so I went up there and spent a couple of weeks, like, you know, sanding the floors down and painting the walls and got it ready. And uh, I turned it into a yoga studio. I started paying her some rent and um, business picked up. And for the next six years, I started coaching. Um, obviously, as I got money, I started to do courses. You know, I started training in uh, anatomy. I did like three 200-hour teacher trainings. I did a 500-hour teacher training. Um, I got various coaches in movement. Um, some really awesome guys. Uh, my first ever handstand coach was uh, a Mongolian Cirque performer called Sinar, who was from the London School of Hand Balance. He was my first ever handstand coach. All right, I didn't know it was your, your first coach because he's uh, he's with you in two weeks, is it? I'm now hosting him in my studio in Ibiza in two weeks' time. So I met Sinar when I got out of prison. Um, and he was quite funny. I went to a workshop one day and he was doing the workshop and he looked at my handstand and he was like, hey man, like, where did you learn that handstand? Like, <laughs> one of the worst handstands I've ever seen. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. He said, like, 
But the weird thing is, your balance is so good. It's like, but it's like the biggest banana I've ever seen. It's like, do you want to come and check? I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So he actually laid me down and walked all over me for a year to flatten my body. And I yeah. trained for four years. So I did, you know, Sinar Sinar was in the Chinese circus at around the age of eight. He performed until the age of 28 and then went into coaching for 20 years. So he's like the drill master. Mm-hmm. He was amazing. Um, and he was a big influence on my, on my handstand and movement life. As well as going into the uh, yoga world, you know, I had a, a yoga teacher, a beautiful guy called Paul Dalligan, who from the Samahita retreat in Thailand. I practiced uh, with Paul for six years. Uh, I think I did over like 1,200 hours of actual training personally under him um, in pranayama, movement, anatomy. Um, I took many courses in anatomy, in physio. I studied chiropractic work, spine, the body. Yeah, I basically spent six years just studying the body movement and training. Uh, I did every course available to mankind, studied Pilates, and you name it, I did it. Um, and it just became my life. And I embodied it and I started coaching. I was coaching movement, handstands, and yoga. And I did that for six years. I think like six years in, I was sorry, I was up to uh, around a thousand sessions a year. So I was doing around a thousand privates a year by that time, which was quite amazing. Um, I mean, I was, I was probably doing like six or seven back-to-backs a day. I mean, it was an epic amount of uh, clients that I had, and a huge community that I built up. Um, and I had this really interesting guy that was kind of like a mentor to me um, from West London. Um, I was training for four years, super kind, super generous. And he turned around to me one day and he was like, hey, Nick, like, you know, I had this old Vespa scooter. He's like, you've been banging around London in your Vespa scooter like 12 hours a day from five in the morning for years now. He's like, would you like to go and live in Ibiza? And I was like, to do what? And he was like, well, I'm, I'm interested in having a consultant working for me to buy some properties over there. Um, and, you know, we've been working together for four years and I really trust you. And so, you know, maybe you'd like to consider the possibility of going there to live. So I, was, I said to him, hey, you know, I've got an amazing business here. And, you know, I love my studio. And he said, well, look, think about it. Like, you know, you're not getting any younger. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I was pretty tired. I mean, I'd done like 6,000 hours of teaching. And, you know, I was, I was feeling pretty tired. And none of them were wearing me down a bit. You know, I was up every day at 5 o'clock. So I took a month um, in 2016 to a recce in and I went to Ibiza for the first time in my life. And I fell in love with it. I just loved it. It was amazing. So I went back and I was like, okay, I'll do it. And he was like, you sure? I'm like, absolutely. Um, you know, he agreed to pay me pound for pound for what I was earning in, in the UK. So I basically gave my notes in the studio and I told my community and my clients that I was going to be moving. Some were super happy, some were super sad. It was kind of like I left a bit of a hole there. I feel a bit guilty, but it all kind of came back later. So anyway, I went to Ibiza in 2016. Um, to work for this guy, it was really cool, and I became his property consultant. And you know, we started to buy properties, and I had a little house. Um, but I never stopped training. I never stopped moving. I never stopped breathing. I never stopped meditating. And as I got to know people in the pizza, um, people were like, "Hey, you know, what do you do? Where do you train? Looks super fit." Like, I said, "Well, look, you know, every morning at eight o'clock, I'm out on my terrace training. Like, come and join me." 
and, and I was big time into primal movement. Uh, primal movement, fusion with some yoga asanas, handstand training, uh, a lot of kind of animal locomotive uh, training I was doing, and people were fascinated by this training that I was doing. Um, and cut a long story short, around eight months later, I walked out to my terrace, there were about 20 people standing there, waiting to train with me. And I was like, wow, movement and coaching has not left me. And, and it kind of took me back to Heathrow Airport, Terminal 5 and 210, when my goal and desire was to integrate movement into people's lives. And I realized that yeah, that was who I was, that was what I do. And what I loved, that's what my passion was. Um, and then one day I was mountain climbing with a friend of mine and I was just kind of talking out loud to him and I said, hey, like, I'm looking for, like a, I don't know, like a movement space, like a, I don't know, a warehouse or a big room that I could have as a studio to like teach movement. Like, you know, speaking out loud whilst climbing up the side of the mountain. And he said to me like, yeah, I, I know a warehouse that's uh, for rent actually in the middle of Ibiza in San Lorenzo. Do you want to go look at it? And I was like, Great. I mean, this was like Sunday afternoon. So I said, yeah, let's go look at it tomorrow. So we went down to the warehouse and I walked into this warehouse. It was like 2,500 square feet on one floor. Uh, and I just walked in there. It was a blank canvas. And as I walked in there, I was like, I'm home. This is it. This is going to be my studio. So I was like, great, call the landlord. And he's like, why did you like that? I said, yeah, I want to rent it. He's like, well, just like that, I said, yep, this is it. I just knew I walked in there, there was no doubt. This was where it's going to happen. My heart just like came alive. And so he was like, okay, amazing. Like, you know, I was thinking about doing a climbing wall. So he said, do you want to do it together? Like a joint venture. So we, we put our minds together. He was also a really amazing carpenter. So we basically built a studio. He built a climbing wall and I built a movement space. I mean, I only, I only needed a wall, a high bar on the floor. And we put a juice bar in there and stuff. And we made this really cool space. Um, and obviously I already had a client base and a community so and I was also doing some community classes um, at some friends places which was super cool and I met an amazing bunch of like performers and dancers and um, circus people so I had a really good community that moved straight in and started playing so I, I walked into like a ready-made business so then I had this kind of double life that I was in I was on one side of the corner, I was being a property consultant, and the other, I was in my passion in movement. And in the end, it wasn't vibing with me. And, and I had a really good relationship with the guy that I came to Ibiza with. So, you know, he, he came to Ibiza one day and saw the space, and he was like, wow, that's amazing what you built there. And I said, look, you know, that's, that's like where my love is. That's my passion. It doesn't earn as much money as what you pay me, but you know what? I can't help the fact that I just love coaching and movement and being in that warehouse all day on my hands and knees running around like an animal. <laughs> you know, he says, he says, I get it. Honestly, like, I get it. It's it's okay. We'll close the contract. Like, I bought enough housing to beat, so I'm super happy. Um, you know, I'm gonna live without you. And you know, I was so grateful to him because he was so generous to me. He was like my he was like my bridge from London back into Ibiza and into movement. And you know, obviously for the money that I work earned working with him, I was able to build my 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 business. And so I still have a really good uh, relationship with this guy. I'm going to be forever grateful to him. Um, and from then onwards, I built, built my studio, which is called Primal Moves. Uh, and that kind of brings me into the current day. And, and, and through, through that space, I met uh, another amazing movement coach and hand balance called Yuval, Yuval who you yourself have trained with. Um, again, an absolute artist on his hands. 
um, who also came uh, and trained in space. And I've also been to see him in Paris. Super lovely guy. Uh, I love his system, his technique. So, so then there was there was Paul Dalligan in yoga. There was Sinar, another school of hand balance, and then there was Yuval. Um, and then later on, I was fortunate enough as well to get Miguel Santana, Miguel Hand Balance. He came also to the space. And I hosted him for another workshop. Um, so I've done a year's worth of coaching with Miguel. And he's also had a massive influence on, on my movement uh, career and uh, hand balancing. So I feel really grateful like, to have worked with Sinar, Yuval and Miguel because they're three amazing hand balancers, three amazing coaches, which have three different deliveries. Yeah. Or to achieve the same goal, which is a beautiful one arm handstand. So I take a little bit from each one. And um, and I think now, like, one arm handstand training has become my entire life. <laughs> I mean, that is it. That's all I think about. So my bubble now revolves around a one arm handstand. That's if it. Any, if anyone saw our chats, they'd be like, oh. Do these guys just talk about handstands because every month it's a check-in it's like, how's the one arm doing it's like yep hour of talk about one arm handstands <laughs> all my training is being around a one arm handstand i sleep around it i eat around it it's like that's it <laughs> and yeah. I say, you have to be though don't you you, you have to I be that. obsessed i have to say if you want to go down the one arm handstand path if anyone's listening out there it will make a mess of your life <laughs> it is such a huge investment in time and energy for 15 seconds <laughs> like you're talking thousands of hours tens of thousands of reps and sets stand on one arm if you're lucky for 15 20 maybe 30 seconds i mean it's out there but i have to say like you know you put all those hours and sets condensed into that 15 to 20 seconds it's such a rewarding journey. It has taught me so much about myself that it's incredible. You know, and, and, and it's inspired. I now have like hundreds of people um, coming to my space to train me every week. We have like 250 to 300 people now walking through primal moves in Ibiza to train. Like my footprint is like 1,000 to 1,200 people a month coming to the space to train primal movement and handstand training. And this is in an island in the Northern Ireland, in the community. So good. It's crazy. I mean, if he was in London and you say, yeah, that's my footprint, you'd be like, yeah, great. Yeah, I'm in a community. Yeah. Um, it's incredible. I think people crave that. It's some there's, there's a number of things that popped up during that very unique and incredible journey. But the space creation, I think, is one of the most important things. It's, it's a principle that I've learned through movement, through my teachers, that... If you create the space, the rest will follow. If you have the passion to do so, if you have the passion to develop it and, and try and orientate yourself from that space. Because I don't think many of us give ourselves that time to step back and actually go, who am I? What am I doing? And we need that. We need that space. Absolutely. And, and through that, like this amazing community is born. You know, we have this really beautiful community now. Like we do two classes a day, then private and after every class, Everyone goes upstairs and they just socially interact. And, you know, this community outside of the handstand community has started to grow, which is a movement community in Ibiza. And, and now people are actually coming in from overseas to come to Ibiza to come and train at the space, you know, to join the community. And there's these threads that run, you know, into Mexico and New York and London and, and all over. You know, people are like coming from all over 
to come and be a part of this beautiful community where they can interact and be like-minded. And, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and, then, and then from the, from the space, I, I developed um, a platform, a movement platform called primalmoves.com, which is basically like a lot of my work and content on a platform now, which is super cheap. It's like 12 euros a month. Um, and for that, you, there's a whole library of content. Um, there's trainings, there's two live trainings a week. There's a handstand course in there. Um, so that is now like, you know, seeing now if I can reach out globally to people and keep integrating movement into people's life and now virally, you know, outside of my studio doors, which is also another really beautiful project, which is in the making. That's awesome. And it's, um, I mean, I got to, I got to know you in Thailand and we had a common, a common passion was obviously movement and we're both doing our asana practice and then handstand up, up in the loft, uh, when there was fitness manager over there and. Then we'd do calisthenics and we'd have to take a break and then do more movement in the afternoon. So it became just basically a, a two-week training camp for us. And that obviously, uh, getting a chance to stay with you at your home on multiple occasions and hopefully getting to come back again soon. It's been just brilliant to see it because you, you live this as well. It's not a case of um, teaching it and then not living it. Your practice is equal to or exceeds your coaching. And I actually want to get into that. What is your daily routine like now, especially around the one arm and breath work, et cetera? Yeah, so, I mean, I always wake up and sit. You know, I always give myself some time uh, just to reflect, uh, get my head into a good space. And then I'm coaching from nine to one most days. Uh, that could be a combination of classes or privates. I could carry on coaching in the afternoon, but I don't. And that is because that time is my time to devote to my practice. And I won't sell that time. So at one o'clock, I'll break for lunch. And then I'll spend two or three hours in the afternoon in self-exploration of movement. So, you know, just working on new patterns, new movement patterns, looking at new systems, trying old systems, looking at other people, what they're doing. Uh, and then obviously my own uh, handstand practice, which takes, you know, at least... 90 minutes a day, at least, just in the basics. So, you know, I could be two or three hours in the afternoon, just like, um, just training, just embodying, just living it, you know? Um, and then it's, you know, I've, by that time, I've probably been in the studio 10 hours. Um, twice a week, I have a, like a family class, which is like a family group I put together. I call it a family group because it's people that come through the morning classes. Um, which have a desire to learn the art of hand balancing. So I have two advanced handstand trainings a week, um, which I actually give for free. I don't charge. Um, but to get into that class, you have to come through the morning groups. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, hey, I've got a great handstand, but it's also about people's attitude to training I'm interested in. Yeah, so it's like, you know, just how dedicated are they to the self? And how much do they want to train? How authentic are they about, you know, their movement practice? Um, if I can see that, then you know, I will bring them into that group. And there's a group about thirty people now that come in the evenings to me, and it's just handstand training, uh, primal movement and handstand training, and it's amazing. It really is beautiful. And then we all hang out in the evening, and you know, we have a smoothie, uh, give us some food. And that's my day. That's my bubble. You know, I don't really move far out of that bubble. You know, by that time, I'm pretty much fried and ready to go home and 
<laughs> do you um obviously when you're training that much i personally find i don't want to eat too much in the day do you find the same because i think from the previous times we didn't eat much through the day but we tend to eat when the evening sort of came in yeah um in the daytime i kind of get through a couple of smoothies with a bit of fat and then uh, my morning is also quite light but then in the evening i will eat something quite substantial um i mean i'm very lucky i live in the beach because i can eat locally sourced foods you know literally farm to table because you know, i don't have to go far for my food uh, and I'm also quite a big meat eater. But again, the meat that I get is from around the corner on the island, or it's coming from a regenerative farm. We had a bit of a conversion a, a few years back, didn't we? I remember your um, first first steak after 13 years. Well, yeah, <laughs> needing it. Um, I think I got through the honeymoon period of not eating meat, and obviously because of you know the world that I come from. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was approaching 50, I definitely felt there was a lack. Um, and now I'm uh, a big carnivore, but again, like regenerative food farm carnivore. Yeah, won't of course, eat of um, It's kind of well, you know, the meat I eat is like sashimi. It's it's amazing, and it feels good as well. I and mean, I'm now fifty, and I often kind of reflect on keeping fit at fifty, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm still going strong. You know, I'm still training like a thirty-five year old athlete. Um, so I often ponder, you know about longevity in training and practice because that's now what I'm looking at essentially like you know the way in which I train now may have been different to what it would have been 10-15 years ago because now I'm looking yeah. hey I'm training when I'm 60 and 70 and why wouldn't that be possible you know I'm still going to be handstanding when I'm 70 so uh, the training that I do now is it's, it's a lot of quality in it um, and I'm very careful with my body not to injure it and obviously that then emanates out into other people because you know they're kind of, kind of inspired. Most of my clients are kind of like 25 to 35, 40 year bracket. So when they see me at 50, you know, hanging out doing one arm sets at 30 seconds a minute, they're like, holy shit, this guy's 50. Look at me. <laughs> that means I mean I mean I mean for a good chance. So yeah, I mean keeping fit at 50 is a is a is a big concern of mine. Um and a good one. You know, it makes me feel good. You know, I wake up in the morning and when I, I sleep well, I wake up feeling good. Um, I recover well. Uh, my cognition's good. You know, if anything, the only thing that I'm losing at 50 is I need glasses to eat. That's it. But my recovery rate's amazing. I can still go and do a two, three, or four hour stint training. Uh, normally I take weekends off. You know, I try and force myself not to go to the studio for the weekend. You know, I might just swim or trip or just hang out and sit in misery for the whole weekend, not training. Or doing <laughs> like, I know I have to do it. I have to force myself to do it. I know uh, a few people can relate to that one. I know I yeah, definitely so can. It's like, you know, Friday comes, I'm like, okay, we're not going to be back here till Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get home to do. So, yeah, you know, you know, yeah, you know so as well, my, my weekends are quiet because, um, you know, I deal with like, I have a social interaction in the week with around 250 people. So come the weekend, I kind of sit at home. Yeah, you need, you need to step back. It, it, it can become a lot and you you sort of need that time to, like we said before, reflect, sit back a bit, reassess. So you go back into the week being keen. You want, you, you're keen to spend time around people again. That's an important process. Which is why as well I won't sell my afternoons because you know I want to give the best to my clients. You know, I want to give the best of me 
And I know that I can only do that from nine to one. If I, I, I did it before I started selling my afternoons and then I got resentful to the client, I got resentful to myself. I wasn't doing what I love and I didn't enjoy so much coaching. I see it all the time. A lot of people who get into teaching yoga as a passion, they, yoga asana, they start teaching it and they say, I never wanted this to become something I despise, but because they're doing it so much, they've lost their passion for the practice because at no point have they said, do you know what? I was doing this for fun. Now I'm just a slave to the money. Exactly. You become mechanical, you know? Um, so now I'm like, you know, even got a guy working with me now. And he's 31, great room is a contemporary dancer, a b-boy hand balancer. And, you know, I'm really helping to educate him on that as well. And he's understanding it super quick. You know, because he does the same amount as ours as me coaching and then the same as ours as me training. And he, he really understands the value of, you know, self-time, you know, living what you teach and breathe. Um, it's super important. You know, don't do something else, but just don't sell your time in that. Yeah. It's really important. I could earn more money, but I won't take it. Uh, because it's a quality that's important to me now, being super authentic with myself and other people. That's a huge life lesson, yeah. Finding time for your own passion, I think, is huge. So to to sort of draw this to a close, last two questions. Biggest life lessons you can impart to others, Nick, based on your experience, your life? Wow. My God. So I suppose, like, ask yourself the question, who am I? You know, really ask, who am I? Am I living true to my authentic self? It's really important. Um, you know, do you love what you do? That's really important that you don't lose sight of that. Because um, for me, like, you know, being able to wake up and have a passion and love what you do is so important. It could be poetry, it could be cooking, it could be writing, whatever, but just love it and do it. You know? um, and I think the biggest lesson that I learned is that uh, my freedom is a state of mind. And not to identify too much with my mind itself. Don't get too tangled up in the movie. Yeah, but not our mind. Yeah. Just kind of like, hey, it's okay. It's going on up there, but I don't need to engage in it too much. Just keep it simple. Keep it simple. I do like that. Last question. To finish every podcast, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human-first approach? Breathe, move more, eat less. Definitely. Wake up and breathe. Give some time to yourself. Have a daily movement practice. Any practice it is, but just have a daily one and do it daily. Just give yourself that time. It could be half an hour, it could be 40 minutes, but give yourself that time to get out of your head and get into your body, yeah? Just eat a little bit less. And I think from that, you're going to come into a very happy space. It comes back to simplicity. And from your experience, your time, the challenges you faced, I think simplicity in that space has been a very important process, which has definitely come through with the advice you've given to others. Um, and so good to catch up again, Nick. And to be honest, I'm desperate to get back out to Ibiza for some time with you, buddy. It's, uh... I'm ready to hang with you. Get on our hands, keep moving. <laughs> yeah, really good to talk to you, David. And I hope that um, you know, if anyone that's listening finds this inspiring, more on the magic of post-prison as opposed to pre-prison. 
but you know, understanding that what happened pre-prison was a void that was being filled. Mm-hmm. And actually the magic was about, you know, the meditative and the movement practice that was brought me to where I am today. I'll uh, link to your app. I'll link to everything that you're doing right now, Nick. Uh, to anyone listening, uh, as I said, Nick's a good friend. Highly recommend him as a coach, as a practitioner, and as a human being. So I will pull the links in the show notes. And it's been an absolute pleasure again, Nick. Great to catch up. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, David. Thanks, buddy. All the best, mate. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode with Nick and myself. One of the biggest take-homes for me from this episode was a reminder of how many lives we actually experience within our own lifetime. And change is always possible regardless of how or what adversity is faced along the way. Thank you again for listening. See you on the next episode.